But uh, without further ado, let's get into the Word. And uh, Oh, Jim's teaching on Wednesday. Um, so I encourage you to come out for that. I'm excited to hear what he has to say. So come out Wednesday night. It'll probably be on like 80s movies or something. <laughs> cool. So today, uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, Friday, I was blessed with the opportunity to share at youth group because Pastor Vin's out of town. And I, I moved the pulpit to the back and just taught from a music stand. The message was on the wrath of God. And so I kind of felt like I don't want to stand behind this pulpit and be like, I'm bringing the heat. But today, I'm standing behind the pulpit on purpose. <laughs> you know, so I can duck, you know, again. <laughs> uh, don't shoot the messenger. It's funny, you know, you pray and you go, Lord, you know, can I just share like a nice, comforting, nice, fun, fluffy message? And no, but uh, it's not bad. We'll see. We'll get to the, we'll get to the heart of it. But uh, when I've had the opportunity to teach, I've been teaching through the book of First Corinthians, and uh, it was one of those books I read early on in my walk a couple of years, uh, a couple of months after getting saved, and it totally blew my mind. It's stuff that I needed to hear, and I think, you know, a lot of times we gloss over the hard things or the the things in Scripture that are just so clear and and right to the point because they're right to the point, and we can't over spiritualize it. We can't you know make an excuse. It's it says what it says, and you know, I think sometimes we don't like that. But, um, wow, got a lot of feedback or something up here. But Corinth, um, actually the, the title of today's message is Members of Christ. Members of Christ. And Corinth was a, a port city. It was an isthmus. Um, it's kind of this little section of land. They have water on both sides, so they used to have ports there. Uh, a lot of commerce went through there. In fact, I remember learning that... Uh, they would bring ships in there, and they would try and build a canal, but for hundreds of years, they could never build a canal through there. People died. The Roman Empire tried to get through there. They couldn't, but they used to try and, I guess, roll ships across on logs. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty big city. It was about 250,000, about the size of Orange County, I believe. Uh, it doesn't sound large today, but a uh, quick search on the Internet said the Earth's population around that time was around 200 million. So they figured 250,000 is a pretty big chunk. So I don't know. I mean... I wasn't there. I don't know. But there was, Paul wrote apparently two to four letters to the Corinthians. We have two of them. Um, scholars disagree on different areas, but the ones that are in Scripture are the ones God's want, God wants us to have. Um, Paul wrote it. He wrote it, um, I think, probably from Ephesus, most likely during his second stay there. Uh, Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Um, he was uh, basically the super Hebrew guy. He knew all the law. He was highly trained, highly educated. He used to persecute the church. He used to kill Christians thinking he was doing God a service. You know, Christians, this is a perversion of Judaism. And then God shows up, knocks him off his horse. And you know the story in Acts. And he comes to know God. And, and now he writes most of the New Testament. The guy who was so against Christianity meets Jesus. And then he's one of the biggest proponents of it. And I think that that's what's important. We know that you know, where this guy is coming from. Like, he's saying this stuff because he knows the Lord, not because, you know, he wants to kill you. <laughs> he doesn't want you to die. Um, but there's practical matters in 1 Corinthians. If we look in 1 Corinthians, we see uh, talks with a church that was really kind of off the wall. You know, there's a saying in Corinth that live like a Corinthian, um, sort of what, stays in Ve- what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You know, to live like a Corinthian meant you kind of lived a wicked and, and wild lifestyle. Um, Corinthians deals with sin issues, church discipline, discipline, the use of gifts, and more. Um, you know, it can be hard to hear, although it's extremely clear. You know, and today's message, I'm going to say, is PG-13. I think today, you know, I love the children's ministry. I was back there the other day when no one was there, just making the air, sure the air was off. And it was just hit me like, wow, this is where the kids come, and this is what children's ministry looks like today. I thought that was cool. But, um... It's PG-13, and we have the kids over there for a reason, um, because sometimes the Bible talks about real stuff. In fact, it always does, but sometimes it talks about hard things, things that you know, you're probably not going to sit around and talk about on most every day, and yet it's in here, so we need to, to cover it. Uh, Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And let's pray, and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you that it's so beautiful out. And God,
God, that you make the nice weather and you make it rain and, and all sorts of things that go around us, God. But we thank you for your word, and most importantly, that it's true and that, God, you say your word um, cuts straight through to the heart of things. It divides bone and marrow. Uh, and God, we pray that you would just do a work here, that, Father, you'd speak and, and let us hear your love and let us uh, know what your heart is, God, through this section, that it's not to be hard or to be condemning, but that it's really just to point us to you and our need for you. And we just thank you for that, God, that you're gracious and merciful and loving and kind. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and that, God, it would be your words and that, God, uh, we'd all get something out of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read the first six verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things to pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers." lawsuits. How often do you hear in modern times, I'll sue you? Or you think, oh no, I'm going to get sued. I I can't do that because they're going to sue me. Or the fear of a lawsuit. You know, it's a big issue for everything today. I remember, I guess when I was becoming a teenager or, you know, in high school before uh, I was familiar with lawsuits, it seemed to be all over the place and I never heard about it before. And I was like, oh, lawsuits must have been invented in the 1980s. (laughs) It's just so popular now. Everyone sues everybody for something pretty much. You know, TV court shows. Uh, I was homesick from work uh, a little while ago and flipping through the channels on, you know, my basic cable. I barely watch it anymore because there's nothing on but advertising. But uh, every channel pretty much had a court show. And people just going there and having these cases that was, you know, it's usually about money or property or someone got ripped off. But, uh, you know, I got a letter in the mail for my car about a class action lawsuit about the rear tires getting uh, worn out too fast and, the car company didn't find any fault with their product, of course, but all these people found a, a problem with it, and they settled outside of court, so they offer you a, you know, a way to get money back on your tires. But it's kind of funny. It's like they were going to sue them, but then when they went to court, they've kind of figured that uh, we might not win. It's going to cost us so much money to do this, so let's just settle, and we'll call it even. And uh, you know, it's a very popular way to get things done, I guess, legally today. Um, but today, you can be guilty or innocent and win a legal case, but then you can be still sued in civil court. Um, you know, I remember one of the first major court cases I heard of was O.J. Simpson trial in school. We were in the, we had brought us like the media room and they showed us the case and he won the legal battle, you know, whether he was guilty or innocent. That's, you know, they deemed he was innocent. But then he had this like civil battles later on, you know, where the family sued. And, you know, I think that happens a lot where you can win out in court, but then all of a sudden there's a lawsuit on top of it. You know, I think the fear of being sued is a major factor in today's society. It infringes free speech and other constitutional rights and allows a loud minority to subdue a yielding majority. You know, a lot of us, I think, we're, we're afraid of being sued, partly because, you know, maybe we don't have the money for a lawyer or we just don't want to go through the hassle or the headache. Or we don't want to lose all our finances. So maybe we're unwilling to do the things that maybe aren't wrong or maybe are right just because, we, you know, we don't want to deal with the person who is willing to go to court. And I'm sure some of you have probably experienced uh, this more than I have. I've had friends who have had lawsuits from car accidents and things, but it doesn't look like it's fun. But he says in verse, you know, uh, verse 1, go to law before the unrighteous. You know, Paul's saying, you guys are believers. You have a problem, and you're going to court before someone who's not a believer. And the word here is unrighteous. Uh, it's adikos in the Greek, I guess. But it says it's a descriptive word of one who violates or has violated justice. You know, it's interesting to, to think of that as someone, as a judge, someone who violates justice. Um, it's unjust, excuse me, I have allergies today, unrighteous or sinful, of one who dealt fraudulently with others, or deceitful. And a lot of times you think, okay, the court's going to hand down a righteous decision. This is the court. This is what's supposed to happen. You know, this judge is a judge for a reason. reason he should pick uh, right and wrong. But that's not always the case. You know, court's justice is really man's justice and man's wisdom. 
And our courts, our society was founded on the Ten Commandments. You used to be able to find Ten Commandments in the courthouses, a lot of places they're removing that these days because we don't want God in our society. And it used to be based on God's wisdom. This is right, this is wrong. And they've started to remove that because they want to say, oh, we know better than that. You know, there's a better law than the Ten Commandments. And that's really because they don't want to follow the Ten Commandments. They don't want to be accountable to anyone but themselves. And, you know, I guess the saying goes with lawyers that, you know, they can kind of weasel their way or finagle their way through anything. You know, a lawyer is kind of a slippery person, at least in the idea of, uh, you know, a stereotype. But uh, corruption, you know, in politics, it's been said, my private life doesn't affect my public office. You know, I can do whatever I want at home, but then I can come serve justice in the court, or I can rightfully decree laws in, in the land. I can be a senator or a president, but my private life, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you look at the current race in, in New York for mayor or a comptroller, it's... <laughs> what movie is this? You know, <laughs> is this really the only two choices we have? You know, out of how many, 8 million people in New York City, that's only two people who step up? You know, I guess they figure... They're going to find out the scandal anyway, so let's get the two most scandalous guys and throw them in there. But, uh, you know, it's not so. Your private life affects your public life because it's your life, you know. There's, you know I know we try and compartmentalize things sometimes, but it just doesn't work that way. And this, you know, brought to mind Jesus' trial. Although technically it was legal, you know, because he wasn't a Roman citizen, they could try him, and, you know, he was a Jew, and the Jews were under Roman law. Um, but it was full of corruption, and people vying for their own way in political power. The Jews wanted him dead because they thought he was blaspheming God. And so they're like, oh, well, we can't kill him. Let's bring him to the guy. And he's afraid of you know, us revolting because he's going to lose his power from Caesar if we revolt again. So we'll, we'll use that against him to get our way against this Jesus. And Pilate goes, oh, man, like, I don't find anything wrong in this guy. I just scourged him. But these people just said, we have no king but Caesar. So they're kind of saying... I'm going to lose my political office. I could be killed by Caesar at any moment. So, all right, I'll do what they say. So this legal system, totally corrupt. It was a, it was a, it was a right trial in the sense that it, it was for Roman law, but the whole thing was corrupt. But God used it for salvation. You know, Jesus didn't say, hey, what about the Constitution? You know, Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm God. I mean, he, he did to Pilate, but he didn't enforce it. He didn't make him change his mind. But there are judges here. They're, polit- they're politically and spiritually corrupt, and there's some judges who are not. You know, uh, there's some laws that come out and get passed, and you go, what? There's some cases that go through court, and you go, how? But there's others who go, wow, okay, that was good. That was good. That was, that was right. It's just harder and harder to find these days. And, uh, and don't think I'm speaking against the government, because Romans 13.1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. And the powers that be are ordained of God. So whether they're doing the right thing or not, God has ordained it and allowed it to be that there's government for, uh, you know, for our good. That there would be law in the land, that there would be a way for crime to be punished, there would be a way for righteousness to be enforced. But we don't always you know, follow that. Sorry, I'm, I had a turbo shot in my cough this morning, so I'm a little wired. But uh, the word unjust, also used in Luke 16.10, I thought this was interesting. It says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is also uh, unjust in much. You know, a corrupt judge will bring about corrupt judgment. So, who then should judge? Who then should judge? And I'm not necessarily saying that every judge should be a believer. It would be great. But against matters with... If you're a believer and they're a believer, who then should judge between you guys? Should it be Judge Wapner? I don't know if he's even alive anymore. Should it be, you know, the Supreme Court? Paul's saying it should be the saints. should be another believer. A lot of people will say, don't judge me in defense of sin. Don't judge me, bro. Don't tase me, bro. You know, this is right and wrong. This is right and wrong. It's right and wrong that they say that, but they have it twisted. Because the Bible talks about two types of judgment. The word here is crino. Um, it's to separate, put asunder, to pick out, to select, to choose, to approve, to esteem, to prefer, to be of opinion, to determine, to judge, to pronounce opinion. It's this is right and this is wrong. This is right and this is wrong. There's another word in the Bible for judgment, and that's crema, I believe. 
It's to decree judgment or make a final judgment. It's a condemnation of wrong. Um, and if uh, the sentence of a judge, there's one judge that's to separate, and there's the other judge that's to determine the penalty. The Bible says that we're to crino, we're to say what is right and what is wrong based on what the Scripture says, because the Scripture says what's right and what's wrong, what's sin and what's righteousness. But we're not to judge in a condemning way. We're not to say, hey, you're doing this, which is wrong in the Bible, you're going to hell definitely. There's no hope for you, because that's not true. There's hope for everyone until the day they die, until the moment they die. I'm sure God gives them every opportunity to repent and come to Jesus. In the same way, we can't say just because you're doing what's right means that you're going to heaven. You know, we don't know. God knows who's going to heaven or not. God says how you get there, and the only way is Jesus, but I think we'll be surprised when we get there. We're not to make the final judgment. Um, you know, we're... He's saying here that we go before the least esteemed by the church. You know, the church kind of looks around, and maybe you esteem pastors, maybe you esteem the worship team, you know, whoever you esteem in the faith, Chuck Smith or Billy Graham or Paul or some of the ancient saints, that you esteem these people because they followed the Lord, there was a change in their life, and they just lived the right way because God was in them. And they weren't necessarily judgmental, but they brought about, there was an clear evidence of right and wrong in their life and that they followed it. And so we esteem them because they're like the Lord, because they know the Lord and the Lord has used them. So why then would we go before a corrupt judge? Even if this judge is an unbeliever and they're trying to do the right thing, they're still corrupt spiritually. They're dead spiritually, really, because they don't know the Lord. And that's not a condemnation. You know, God doesn't condemn them. Their own sin does. God wants them to know him. But how can they make a godly decision if they don't know God or they don't believe in God. Um, so why not bring them before a believer? Why not bring about someone who's going to use God's wisdom and not necessarily the wisdom they got from their textbook? Solomon. You know, Solomon was David's son. He became king of Israel. He was the wisest man ever to live. Uh, in chapter 3 of 1 Kings, he asked God for wisdom. You know, he wasn't, hey, God, give me riches. He said, God, give me wisdom. And, uh, you know, he writes a lot of uh, the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. But later on in that same chapter, there's that story of these two women, these two prostitutes who come to him. You guys probably know the story where, um, you know, you can read it in First Kings 3. But basically, there's two prostitutes. They both have a baby. In the middle of the night, one of them rolls over and, and kills their child and, you know, doesn't, you know, go to the hospital or try and resuscitate them, just knows that they're dead. They go over, they sneak, and they swap the babies from the other bed. So the other woman wakes up sees that, oh no, my child is dead. I must have smothered them asleep. But then looks a little closer. He goes, this isn't my child. That's my child. You have my child. Give me my child back. And, you know, they fight. No, 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 no. And somehow they get before the king and they make this big commotion before King Solomon. And uh, he gets right to the hard matter and he says, all right, let's divide the baby in half. We'll give half to you and half to the other. And the one lady goes, yeah, that's a great idea. The other lady goes, no, 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 no. Just give the child to her. Don't hurt the child. And Solomon goes, give the child to, to that woman. Because he got right away to the heart of a mother. Don't hurt my child. Don't hurt my child. He got right to the heart of the matter. And I think a lot of times in modern judgment, we kind of obfuscate things and we cover things up and we say, oh, well, we've got to be politically correct or, oh, they're just a product of their environment or, oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, we need to get right to the heart of the matter. And that's what the Bible does here. It says that, you know, like Solomon, if we ask for wisdom, God will give it to you. God will give it to you. And usually it'll come through the Bible. You know, someone will share a verse to you, you'll be reading in your devotions, and you go, oh, that's how I have to handle the situation, and I don't really want to handle it that way, but that's what I've got to do, because that's God's wisdom and not mine. And, uh, you know, it says that we will judge the universe, the cosmos, the world here. It says that, you know, in a sense, we're going to be the jury for the universe, that in a sense, we're going to judge angels. God's going to, you know, deal with everything at the end. But in a sense, we're the jury. You know, we go, oh, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. God, you make the, you pronounce the judgment. So if we can handle that, if we can handle spiritual matters, matters, which are greater and more important than physical earthly matters, why can we not sort out things between each other? You know, as believers, we know God. And we have a spiritual life now. We're alive when we once were dead. And we now see things differently. We have discernment. We can tell right and wrong what's really right and wrong. And if we can see that, how come we can't handle petty little matters between each other? 
You know, if we can know the, the deep things of God, so to say, and judge angels, how come we can't say, oh, you owe me five bucks? Don't worry about it. Or, yeah, this is your lawnmower. Let me give it back to you. You know, how come we can't handle these things? Sin. There's sin. You know, there's sin in, in each and every one of us. And if we know Jesus, it's been forgiven and God's cleansing us and sanctifying us and reducing its effects on our life. But we still dwell in this body of sin and death and we still give into it sometimes. And if there's a problem with, with me and someone else or, or you and someone else, it's usually because of sin, whether they've sinned against you or whether you're harboring sin in your heart for them. And probably if you're unwilling to admit that, it'll get to a point where you're going to sue them and bring them to court. But there's a prescription for dealing with matters with other believers. I'm not necessarily talking about a situation with an unbeliever here, what happens if you get ripped off at work or whatever. I say pray about that. But with believers, there's a prescription. It says Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you two or more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be you like, to be like a heathen and a tax collector. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. Those last two verses often get quoted out of context and like, oh, two or three are gathered. God's there. That's true. But in context, it's saying that when there's something going on, if a couple believer, if there's a problem with believer, you go to that other believer and, and you talk about it. If they don't hear you, get a friend, get a mutual friend, get an impartial believer to come in and you know, deal with the situation gently. If they still don't hear you, bring them to the leaders, bring them to the pastor. If they don't hear that, bring them before the church. Hey, this, we tried to deal with this in a spiritual way. This person won't hear all these spiritual people in their life. There's something wrong there. Yeah, they may be a believer, but there is something wrong when you won't listen to the counsel of a friend. Another friend comes to you. Pastors come to you. You go before the church and you still don't repent. You know, there's something wrong. You may be a believer, but there's, there's definitely a sin issue that has to be dealt with. You know, so, so what if they don't hear this? What if they're an unbeliever? They're an unbeliever. You know, what can you do? You know, they don't know God. They're not, they're not acting accountable to God. They'll be accountable one day. They'll be accountable one day. But let's go on. Let's read 7 through 8. Now, therefore, it is already an under failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. You yourselves do wrong and cheat. It's what he's saying, like, the reason why we do this and we get this far in our problems with each other because we ourselves are doing wrong and cheating. It's been said that a lot of times when you point the finger, you got three and a half pointing back at yourself. You know, like take the log out of your own eye before you deal with the speck in your brother's eyes. Like a lot of times we get that far it's because we're lying and cheating already and we just want more of that, that stuff for ourselves. But he says it's an utter failure that you go to law and one's against another. Like when you get to court with that other believer and you look across, eh, Utter failure. Utter failure. That's what the, what the Bible says. You know, that's what the Bible says. John thirteen thirty four to 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God wants us to love each other. You know, that doesn't always mean get along. You know, it doesn't always mean be friends with everybody, but it means love each other. If He says that, you know, why don't you just accept that wrong? You know, he ripped me off. Okay, fine. He ripped me off. It's, you know, he sinned against God and I'll just let it be and I'll forgive him. I mean, that's hard. I'm not saying that's easy. I, I, I don't know how it plays out after that. I guess it depends on, their, on what they do. I'm not saying that you need to keep being buddy-buddy with the person, let him keep ripping you off and be a doormat. Not necessarily. I mean, see what the Lord would, would have you do, but going to court, it's a little different. And I think, too, that that's a, that's a witness. If I'm an unjust judge, which I am, and uh, because I'm not God, and I'm standing here, and I don't know God, but maybe I thought about God, maybe they, you know, 
before in my life because God's the judge. I'm sure it's crossed my mind before. And two believers, people who claim to know God or are supposed to be loving, come before me and go, whatever the issue is, you know, she stole my baby. I go, man, is God real? Is this, you know, you're coming to me? Don't you have God? Like, why are you coming to me for? You know, it's a horrible witness. Marriage, divorce, you know, this is a touchy subject, uh, especially given the current state of uh, society. But if an unbeliever departs, let them depart. You know, if your spouse is an unbeliever and they walk away, okay. You know, it's, the Bible says God hates d- divorce, and he does. You know, but he says, you know, if there's sexual immorality, that makes sense. You know, and marriage and everything can get very messy. And, you know, I'm sure that there's all sorts of situations and it's something that you should always seek counseling on. But if you guys are both believers, there's really no biblical excuse for getting divorced unless you cheat on each other. And even then, only if you have a hard heart. And I've only been married a little over a year, so I can say this pretty easily. My wife could probably say, oh, I, you know, just kidding. She would never do that. We promise never to use that word ever. Because it's not right. It's not right. And I know people who are going through situations like that uh, are believers, and there's rough things going on, and I just go, man, I don't know. God, I don't know if I'd handle it as good as they're handling it. I don't know that I'd be as gracious to my partner as they are. You know? Another verse, Matthew 5.25 says, agree, this is Jesus, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you get thrown in jail. He's saying, all right, so all right, you've made it to the point where you're actually on the way to court. Pull the guy over. Stop him before the metal detector and say, hey, hey, bro, how can we work this out? I'm sorry, forgive me. Let's work this out. Whether you did the right or wrong, work it out there. Settle out of court. Do whatever it takes because... Do you want to go to jail? I mean, practically, do you want to go to jail? I don't, you know. I don't. So why should we go to law against someone else when God hasn't dealt with us according to law? You know, God's been so gracious and merciful with us. Why are we going to go, you know, to law against someone else? You know, there's that, that story that Jesus tells about the servant who's forgiven all like a million dollars, and he begs and pleads, and the guy says, oh, don't worry about it, just forget about it. And then he walks down the street, he's probably walking out of his master's house, he bumps into Fred, Fred owes him five bucks, grabs Fred by the neck, and, Fred, give me that five dollars, or I'm, you know, Ugh. And the master goes, excuse me, what did you just do? I just let you off a million bucks. Go into jail until you pay every last penny. It's like, you've been forgiven so much, we've been forgiven so much, let's forgive others. I'm not saying it's easy, it's, you know, it took Jesus dying on the cross for that to be possible, but let's seek the Lord on that, you know? Romans 12, 17 through 21 says, I'm just going to read verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Here's the clincher. If it is possible, as much depends on you and me, live peaceably with all men. You know, there's situations in my life where I've had to like try and make peace with somebody and I've gone over and over and over and, you know, they just don't want peace. Okay, I've done as much as I can. I'll try my best to be as peaceable with this person. But if you don't want it for me, okay, no problem. You know, you don't need to go out there and demand that, be my friend or forgive me. You know, if you've done your best and you've tried to make reparations, if that's a word, take care of it. So then why is this going on? Again, we say, verse 8, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. You know, it's the corrupt nature trying to get what it wants, cheating. And I have to ask, are we living for an earthly kingdom or a heavenly one. A lot of these lawsuits are about an earthly kingdom. Give me millions of dollars so I can retire and go play golf or do whatever you want to do for the rest of your life here on earth. And this other person, because they hit you in the rear end of their car for whatever reason, now is forever paying off this debt that they're probably never able to pay. Is that right? I don't know. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to. God knows your needs. You know, if you're worried about a situation you're going through, ask God, seek God. He'll meet your needs. And if it doesn't work out the way you thought it did, your needs are still met. And I don't mean to be so cavalier about that, but it's true. God does care about your needs. 
you know, there's been many situations in the past couple of years. It's like, wow, God, I don't know how this is going to work out. I need you to work this out. And he's worked it out, whether it be where I have to live or bills that had to be paid or personal situations. You know, I haven't done it perfectly. Definitely not. But anytime I've actually, like, trusted in God even a little, he's shown up huge. Let's go on 9 through 11. Do you not know? Here's what we get. I'm going to duck a little bit when we start reading this. Do you not know that the unrighteous, unrighteous again, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not everyone's going to go to heaven. Not everyone who claims to be a believer is going to go to heaven. You know, unrighteous again, adikos, you know, this unjust, sinful, corrupt person. You know, if you're actively living for God's kingdom, you know, if you're actively living for his kingdom, you'll inherit the kingdom, you know. God says that he rewards his servants. He rewards his kids. You know, there's an inheritance. You don't even have to do anything. You get to go to heaven. You just trust in Jesus. That's a pretty good inheritance. But if you're living for this world, you're not putting anything ahead. And in fact, you're probably ruining any chance of it because you're doing these corrupt things that God says is is wicked. You know, so this begs the question, does that mean if I won't go to heaven if I'm a Christian and I'm living in sin or if I'm approving of these sins or... I like to dabble in it once in a while. I don't know. You are at the most, you won't have a reward there. But I will say, if you really are a Christian, would you even be doing those things? Like, regularly? We all struggle with sin. We all screw up. We all need to repent at times. You know, all the time. I'm not saying that if you fall into sin, you know, the Bible says if a righteous man falls seven times, he gets up. You know, we're all going to stumble and do stupid things from time to time. But if your lifestyle is marked by sin, marked by these sins, that we'll look at real quick in a minute, I don't know if you know God or really know him. You might know about God. You might be religious. But if God's in your life, if a holy God is in your life, there's no way you can continue in these things. You'll be convicted. You'll, you know, you're just, God, help me, get me through this. You'll seek counsel. You're not going to continue in it and say, yeah, I'm a believer, and going out and drinking or you can fill in the blanks there. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You know, it's interesting that this section follows a section on lawsuits, that there's this correlation between the unjustness of what's going on in this outward sign of this lawsuit to this inward heart thing that's going on here. You know, the world today wants you to believe that all of these things are not only okay and permissible, but that they're the way things should be. You know, we're in an enlightened age, if you will. Uh, we're free from the shackles of doing What's right? We can do whatever we want. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Matthew 6.22 says, uh, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is, that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If, if you think that what you believe is right and it's wrong, you're in serious darkness. It's like, it's one thing to know, oh man, what, I don't know what I believe. I'm so lost. I, I know my life's a mess and I just don't know which way is up and which way is down. And at least you can admit it. Like they say, the first step is admitting it, right? But if you go, oh man, my way is totally right no matter what the consequences are and what's going on. And you, no, God can't be real. You know, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. I was there. It says, as such for some review. So it was me. I was in trouble. Without the Lord, I'm still in trouble. You know, we're all, we were all this way before you know Jesus. Don't kid yourself. Oh, I lived a good life and then I just, you know, got the Jesus bumper sticker and you're fine. No, if you really know Jesus, you know that beforehand, I know you're going to mention the stuff that, that you did, that I did. Because God is gracious enough to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us of those sins and make us a new creation. Someone who doesn't have to do that anymore. Someone who's free from that. But we'll get into it. This is where it gets really kind of PG-13. I won't go too deep. 
you know, the Bible says, uh, be simple concerning evil. So let's not get too deep on this. But it says fornicators. The word is pornos. That makes sense. Those who have sex outside of marriage. And this also means a man who prostitutes his body to another's lust for hire, which is pretty popular back in the day. Um, a male prostitute or a man who indulges in unlawful sexual intercourse. You know, sex is sex, guys. If it's sex, then, you know, it's something that's sexual. It's sex. I mean, a lot of people try and blur the lines. Oh, well, we didn't do that. <laughs> and when in doubt, throw it out. <laughs> idolaters. You know, we don't think of too many people as being idolaters today. I mean, some people, if you know people from other cultures, they come over and they might have a shrine in their house to a certain idol. Um, you might have a big picture of Greg Norman on your wall that you worship every Sunday, you know, as you get your nine iron, I don't know. But worship of false gods, you know, it's interesting that the definition here can also be an idolater is a covetous person as a worshiper of mammon. Well, who's mammon? Is, is that like a woolly mammon? You know, no. Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four, no one can serve two masters. Freely he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is earthly riches. Like, it's okay to have money, and I'm, I'm thankful that Certain believers have money. Um, if you are one, have me over. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It's my birthday. No, I'm just kidding. Um, seriously, just kidding. But you can't serve both. Like, you know, it's okay to have a career. It's good to have a job. Like, I have a good job. God's blessed me with a great job. I love it. They're very professional there. They do great work, and it's a great opportunity to be there. But it's, you know, it's kind of a career in a way, but serving God, you know, whatever way that plays out, is my real career. You know, it's like, I find if I were to devote my entire life to my job, I can never be at church or at home with my family. Or the same way, like, you know, if I never devoted any time to my family, you know, if I was always at home with my family, I'd never be at work. So there's got to be this balance. And it's not wrong to have money, but if it gets in the way of God, it's wrong. You know, the Bible doesn't say money's evil. It says the, the root of all evil is money. It, uh, you know, a lot of kinds of evil is money. Like a lot of times, like you talk about lawsuits, usually it's about money about, I got ripped off, pay me. Let's go on. More fun stuff. Adulterers. Having sex outside of your own marriage or someone else's marriage. You know, you get it. I get it. Homosexuals or sodomites. You know, modern language kind of defines these in two ways, and I won't really get into it. Um, You know, uh, homosexuality is practiced widely today. It's also practiced widely back then, although it was a little different back then. Um, They kind of had different views on it. But Romans 1, we talked about a Friday night at uh, Haven, um, talks about God's abandonment judgment. A lot of times we, we think of, uh, you know, all these sins as, as the reason why God's going to judge us. In a sense, that's true, but really it says that people stopped worshiping God for who he was, stopped being thankful for who he was, said, we don't even want to think about you anymore, God. And God goes, okay, I'm going to turn you over to it. Turn you over to it. And as God does that, the signs of all this, like, you know, use the uh, analogy of a fridge being unplugged, and for a little while there, the, all the food's good, but then the food starts going bad because it doesn't have the power anymore. And just like when we get rid of God in our lives, in our society, it looks good for a little while, but eventually, you know, stuff starts to rot and go bad, and, you know, it's crazy. And that's kind of what's happened in our society. And God kind of steps back for a while and goes, okay, have at it. Just like the Sodom, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and Genesis. And eventually God comes down and Jesus comes down, basically in a Christophany there, a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, and he goes, let me see what's really going on. And this was something that they were really into, and eventually God's judgment came on it. But God gave them time to repent. It wasn't like, sin. It was, okay, I'll let you sin. Go for it. I'm going to go back and hang out over here and pray for you. So don't take it as this is condemning people, because the Bible says that our own sin condemns us. When we go stand before God, God's going to go, this is what you did. That's what's condemning you. Uh, thieves, the word is kleptos, kleptomaniac. You know, it can mean an embezzler, a pilferer. Uh, it's interesting also that the name is transferred to false teachers, false religious leaders who, uh, who do not care to instruct men, but abuse their confidence for their own gain. Name it and claim it. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise if you just tithe more. Maybe, but I mean, Jesus was poor. The only, like, I guess my major debunk for that is, well, Jesus was poor. He didn't have a place to live, but the only place I really see healthy, wealthy, and wise consistently for everybody is in heaven. On earth, there's examples of it, but more often than not, he says, the poor you always have with you. So, you know, be content. You know, covetous, eager to have more. 
drunkards. You know, this is almost taught in high school and college. An extortioner, a robber, a murderer. You know, heaven, this is where none of this goes on, but, you know, we get to be with God. It says, as such, we're some review. This is what we need to remember. We were all this way before Christ. You know, people will condemn this section of the Bible or this, these verses of the Bible, but they miss that last verse, that there's, as such, we're some review, that there's, yeah, this is the case, but there's hope for you in Jesus. There's freedom for us in Jesus from all these things, that you don't have to bear the consequences of this thing on Jesus. But on the flip side, we need to remember where we came from and not to be judgmental. And, you know, there's a different way to handle believers and unbelievers in this, but people just need Jesus. We all need Jesus. You know, none of us are right by our own doings. You know, but if you claim to be a believer, we have no excuse. If we know Jesus. We have no excuse, you know, for, to continue in sin. You know, let's go on. Let's, uh, there's like 10 more verses, but we'll burn through this. Uh, verse 12 through 14. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You know, people use this section as an excuse for sin, an excuse for what Paul just talked about. Like, oh, like, you know, just do it. You know, the body, that's what the body's for. You know, I, you know, I can go out and live that way. You know, it's not the case. He's saying all things are lawful, but does that mean all the things that the Ten Commandments says not to do are now okay to do because of Jesus? No, it's not okay to murder. You have forgiveness for it if you do it, but it's not lawful. I mean, even society says it's not lawful. So what is, you know, what is he saying here? He's saying that it's not an excuse to sin. Just because your body wants to do it, just because it feels good, doesn't mean it's right. You know, feelings aren't an indicator of right or wrong. Feelings are an indicator of feelings. You know, you feel hungry. You know, feel tired. It's just a, just like a light going off. You know what? You know, in your car. You know, change the oil. Okay, if the lights on when you change your oil. You probably waited too long. But Romans six one it says, "What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it?" You know, but on the other hand, if all things are lawful, that are lawful to me, we shouldn't let them take over our lives. We shouldn't be bound by them. Because there's plenty of good things out in this world that we can go out and do, have a good time doing, hang gliding, whatever. You know, I would be scared to do that. I'd rather have a parachute, hang glider, fails, you're done. But it's not sinful to hang glide. If hang gliding becomes like your sole passion in life, I don't know why I'm saying that. It's really, I'm not a morning person. Um, Let's pause here. We'll come back at 7. Anyway, um, if that takes place of God in your life, that's sinful. You you make it an idol, it's sinful. But he says that God's going to destroy both it and them. Like, both that food, that steak dinner that you want so bad, and your stomach, they're both going to die one day. So don't live for it. You know, don't live for it. Like, it's okay to have it, but don't live for it. And our true purpose is not to have sex. You know, contrary to what MTV and you know, they'll tell you in school says, it's not your purpose in life. Your purpose in life is not to meet somebody else and have a relationship. Although I'm so glad that the Lord brought Ashley and I together. It's not my purpose. My purpose is to know God and to glorify him, and hers is too. And our true purpose is to be the temple of God, God with us, living in us. Let's go on. 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I, uh, sorry, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Members of Christ. We are his body. If you've been around a church for a while, you've probably heard, we're the body of Christ. If you've never been to church or you're not a believer, you haven't heard that, you go, what? The body of Christ? Really? I don't get it. What it means is that you know, Jesus went back to heaven. He gave us the Holy Spirit. We're the ones living out and acting out his life. We're together. You know, Christ is the head and we're the body. He's the one who directs us to live and move and have our being. Um, but it's interesting, this word members, there's even an intimate undertone in the statement that there's this, you know, members, this like private area, like undertone in this. Make no joke. Having sex is more than just a good time. It is a physical act 
with supernatural power. It joins not only the body physically, but the mind and the heart and the spirit. It says that the two shall become one flesh. Like, you know, even in public sex education, I can remember from high school, they taught that when we have sex with someone, we have sex with every person they've ever had sex with. Ugh. You know, no, disease is rampant. Disease is rampant, you know. Says the two shall become one. You know, in marriage, sex is great and shall be practiced within marriage. You know, if physically all is okay and God wills it, you'll, you know, you'll have children from that. It's a good thing. But you can tell, like, if, you know, I'm sure some of you, I hope not all of you, but like myself, you know, you've had sex outside of marriage and it's like, there's scars from that. There's scars from that. You know, you can probably remember people or, you know, just memories come up sometimes. You have to get rid of them. It's like, there's always some connection that's left there. Uh, God can heal that. God forgives that. There's grace and everything. Uh, there's this analogy of, uh, I remember uh, a youth pastor years ago, he, it was a great analogy, and he took two pieces of paper and uh, glued them together, right? Like Elmer's glue, let it sit. Pulled them apart, you know, after it dried. When he pulled it apart, there's pieces of paper stuck on this one that ripped off, piece of paper from this one ripped off, and that's what happens, you know, in the confines of marriage, there's no ripping because you guys stay one. But outside of marriage, there's a ripping, there's a tearing because it's, it's what happens. It's the way God designed it to be, to be draw two people together as one. But it says, this is an awesome verse. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Wow, you know, Jesus, you're one spirit with God. Like, that's crazy. God's spirit living in us? That's amazing. You know, that's ultimate intimacy. That we can be that one spirit, that unified being with God. Not that I'm God or that you're God or that, you know, you know you're going to go walk on water or anything. But that's just that you have this personal intimacy that God says that he, he speaks to your spirit in that still small voice or, or through your word that you can have that intimacy with him. Let's wrap it up, the last couple of verses. Uh, 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It says, flee sexual immorality. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament of Joseph, and he's working in his master's house, and the master's wife really desires him and keeps trying to get him. And one day she gets all the servants out of the house, and she tries to grab him, and he says, no way, like, I'm serving God. I'm not doing this. And he runs away, and his cloak gets left in her hand, so he's, like, running out, you know, in his shorts because uh, he had to flee sexual immorality. And she, bl- you know, she says, he tried to rape me, and he goes to jail and everything, um, you know, wrongfully accused. But he did the right thing. He fleed sexual immorality, and, and nothing will kill your spiritual health faster and more potently than sexual sin. It doesn't mean that, that there isn't grace that God can forgive you and restore you and work through it with you. But nothing will, you know, bring you down faster than sexual sin. And you cannot play with it. And the Bible says, can a man bring fire into his lap and not get burned? You can't play around with it. You're going to, you know, we're going to get burned if we play with it. You can only run from it. You know, don't be fooled. You can't dabble in it a little bit and not get burned. You can only run from it. But there is grace. It says here that you were bought at a price. And it's interesting because of the context here. It says that, you know, we were talking about lawsuits are about money. Uh, thieves, covetousness, idolatry, extortioning, usually about money. Uh, the words fornication, homosexual, sodomite have some connotations about prostitution built into them. Um, you know, and also that, uh, sorry, I screwed something up here, sorry. But it says that you're bought at a price. You know, Hosea, God's prophet, how would you like to be God's prophet and hear God tell you this? Uh, Hosea 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of this guy, um, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Thanks, God. I gotta go marry a prostitute and have kids with her so that you can show Israel that that's what they've done with me. Whew. You know, I, I, I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. I mean, the kind of Old Testament prophet was a rough life. God was asking you to do some crazy things to show the craziness of their sin, and, and they're leaving God. But Jesus was bought with a price. You know, 30 pieces of silver was a slave's price that Judas was paid to rat Jesus out. Jesus out. 
But there was a price to be paid for you to know God, to have his spirit live within you, for us to go to heaven. That price was Jesus' death on the cross. We were all harlots before we know the Lord. And Jesus came and paid the price of his own life to buy us back, to buy us out of that life of slavery and sin and buy us into his own house. You know, if you, if you save up or spend a lot of money on something you really want, like, man, I really want this thing that's in that catalog or I see it keeps in the commercial for, or maybe it's a nice house or whatever it is that you saved up a lot for, worked really hard for, or you know that you'll probably never be able to be afford, able to be able to afford again, you're probably going to take care of it, right? You're probably going to wax it. You're probably going to make sure no one spills anything on it. You know, you're going to put plastic on your couches, whatever it takes, you know? Like, that was the, I remember my grandma was little, there's plastic everywhere. But uh, God bless her. But, uh, you know, it's like, okay, I bought it. Now I can't even use it because I'm so worried about it. Like, same thing with our salvation. If, if our salvation costs so much that we can never afford to pay for it, we can never say, okay, God, I'll serve you for 30 years and then everything be okay and we're square and then I'm going to go play golf. I don't even like golf. I'm saying that, but who knows? We can never pay for it, so wouldn't we take care of our salvation? We can't earn our salvation. God gave it to us, but we should take care of it and not continue in sin and not muddy it up with sin. You know, if we've come to know Jesus personally, we are God's. Let's live like we're his. Let's live like we're going to heaven and our kingdom is not of this earth. You know, Jesus said, if my servants were of this earth, then I'd have them fight. But they're not. They're not. Because my kingdom is of heaven. So let's be members of Christ. One spirit with him, one body with each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you, God, that you uh, encourage us and admonish us to, to repent and come to you, God. And I pray for anyone here that's struggling in sin or in sin, that, God, that they would come to you and know that your heart for them is, is not anger. God, you don't like necessarily what we've been into, but, God, you want to forgive us for it and robe us in your righteousness. And I pray, God, that you would do that, that, Lord, those who uh, need to turn to you would do so now. And, uh, God, I pray that your spirit would be on us, that, Father, um, what you desire to do in our lives would be done, that we would live for you and not this earth. And, and if there's anyone here, I'm not going to look, but if there's anyone here who just wants to turn to God, Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Repent from your sin. And, and, and if you'd like that, pray this prayer with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I believe that God raised you from the dead and that you're the only way to be forgiven and to go to heaven. Please forgive me and bring me to heaven and help me to know you. In your name, Jesus.